Good morning, Midland Free. Good morning. Hey, my name is Jeremy. Welcome here. We're so glad that you're here to worship with us today. Let me say a prayer as we continue to engage with our God. Lord, we're thankful for who you are and everything you've done. We thank you for the children we hear. Lord, we thank you for the future hope we have and the present reality of eternal life that you give. Lord, may we walk in your ways. May we obey your word and may we submit to your spirit and may we follow you faithfully each and every day of our life in Jesus name. Amen. So I have this app on my phone. Yes, exactly right. Where is this going? Which app is it? I try to be as basic as I can, but this is one I just have to have living in Michigan. It is a Weather app, exactly right. Um, I checked it this morning. I don't know what it's doing right now. It could be snowing, could be raining, could be sunny and 70 degrees. But I have this weather app on my phone and I enjoy it for a number of reasons, one of which is the weather, another of which is that it has these really cool videos on the side and they're these little, you know, 30 minute to, or 30 minute. 30 second to one minute videos because everybody nowadays has a phone. So whatever it is, a car falling off a cliff or something blowing up or water spouting out of something it shouldn't spout out of, they've got a video of it. So I'm interested in these things. And I look at one of these videos this week and a lot of them, as you can imagine, happen to be coming out of uh, Western United States, particularly California and the wildfires. One that drew my attention in a really strong way was one of these firefighters at 3 a.m. driving down this windy mountain road with flames leaping up on either side of them. It was amazing. It looked like, I mean, I know this is metaphorical, but it looked like they had just driven into the pit of hell itself. I mean, fire and smoke and debris, and they're driving right into it. And I'm thinking to myself, wow. That takes some courage. Indeed, you watch as the windshield wipers are going back and forth, and it's not because it's raining, but instead because all this debris and smoke and stuff is hitting the vehicle. You can hear it going clunk, clunk, clunk as they're driving down the road. And I'm thinking, if I'm a firefighter in the cab of that truck, I'm just thinking, man, am I sure about this? Like, We're doing pretty good right now because we're going in the right direction. But what if the wind changes and all of a sudden our route is cut off? Who's going to come and save us, the firefighters? Will we be okay or will we get burnt? Today, as we look at Ruth chapter 4, I think there are several people in this chapter that are having very similar feelings. They're in a very difficult spot where things could go one way or the other. Their loved ones have died. They've fled for their lives. The route is narrowing and narrowing, getting narrower and narrower. And they have to be asking the question, what's going to happen if we're cut off? Who will come and rescue us? Ruth chapter 4 says this. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, and sit down here. 
And the Redeemer turned aside and sat down. And Boaz took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. And so they sat down. And Boaz said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. The other redeemer said, oh, okay, I will redeem it. And Boaz said, oh, by the way. The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. And the Redeemer said, oh, hang on, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take the right of redemption for yourself. I don't want it. I cannot redeem it. Now, the narrator is going to explain this strange cultural custom to us. Narrator says, now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. Here's the bill of sale. This is what they did to the the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. These are property rights. This is a deed so that what it conveys is the idea of if you hold this shoe, you have the right to walk on this ground. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. And so when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, the Redeemer drew off his sandal and gave it to Boaz. And Boaz said to all the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malin. Also Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malin, I have bought to be my wife for the purpose of perpetuating the name of the dead In his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It starts out, the scene begins at the city gates. And what I'd like to do today then is move the sermon in that format. We'll start at the gates. We'll move to the other kinsman redeemer. And then we'll come back to another set of gates. Not the city gates, but something very close. So we begin with the city gates then, and the city gates are basically the economic center, the political hub, the the foundation of where business transactions happen within the city. And the reason for it is this. It's different. Today, you know, you have your your telephones, you have your cell phones, you have your computers, you do business online. You don't even have to go to the courthouse or wherever. You just sign in and pay your fee and you're done. But back then it didn't quite work like that. Instead, what happened is this, there is a major thoroughfare coming in and out of the city. And that happens to be the city gate. So naturally 
to do business, if you wanted to sell something or you wanted to buy something, that was a good spot to set up. So everyone went to the city gates. They set up business there. The the judges did courts there. The, the marriage licenses were given out there. Business transactions happened. Anything and everything that needed to be done happened at the city gates. So, for example, in Second Samuel, it becomes clear that if the kings wanted to make an official declaration or they wanted to do something, they went down to the gate and sat there. If conspirators wanted to rally up a conspiracy and and spread false information, they wouldn't go to Facebook. They would go to the city gates and they would plant themselves there and they would begin to see who had an open ear and they would pick their brain and then try to change the course of things. And then at the same time, war plans were made in that same spot. So kings sat, conspiracies were conspired and war plans were made at the city gates. Hold that thought in your mind. So this is where Boaz went down to the city gate. He's going to get a marriage license. He wants to redeem Ruth. And it just so happens, just like so many other things in this book, you know, Ruth came back at the exact right time, at the exact right place, to the exact same, exact right relative. It just so happens that as Boaz is going down to the city gate, that the very person who he needed to do business with, walks across his path. That's a good day, isn't it? That's when you know the Lord is in it. When you're like, oh boy, I hope I run into so-and-so today. Well, I got to do this and this and this and that. And then eventually I'll go and I'll give him a call and see if we can cross paths. And what do you know? It just so happens that here he is. And there is this other kinsman redeemer. Now the Hebrew calls this person Poloni Almoni. Sounds like baloney. Now, doesn't that just move you? Deep spiritual truth brought out from the original languages. We'll get to that here in a second. Verse 6 says this. The Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it. When Boaz offers him this opportunity and says, here's some land. The guy's like, yeah, I'll take the land. And he says, oh, by the way, not only the land, but there's also a lady. And then the guy's like, ah, That wouldn't go so well for me and my wife, probably. Not only that, but my own estate. I don't want to mess up the inheritance. We got these kids and this plan. And yeah, no thanks. And so I cannot redeem it for myself. Why? What is his motivation? Lest he impair his own inheritance. What this guy is thinking about is me and my own. He's thinking about how do I make this best for me and my family? And that's a natural thought that a lot of us have. And as men, we do have the responsibility to provide for our families. But there is also this higher calling in which we are not only called to our own families, but to the family of God in the entire world. And this kinsman doesn't seem to get that. He's only focused on one thing. And as a result, his family has become his idol. Now, church, listen, that can happen to us too. It's good to focus on your families. In our day and age, there's probably not enough attention on families and marriages are falling apart and we need to do more. True. But there are some of us who actually idolize our families. And I think this is this guy right here who he's got to the point that the only thing he cares about is himself and his own family. But on the other hand, there is another person in this picture. And his name is Boaz. In verses 5 and 10, he reveals why he is about to act. And this Boaz says 
that he's going to make the transaction. He's going to purchase it. And also Ruth, the Moabite, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. In other words, Boaz's motivation in this is not to make himself look good. It's not to make his own estate get bigger. But instead, it's for the purpose of building up the family of Elimelech. He's doing this at his expense, at his cost, at his risk, for the sake of someone else. Now, let me ask you a question. This is an open book test, okay? Teenagers, you're going to like this. You can use your Bibles. You can look down. You can phone a friend. You can ask a friend. I don't care what you do. It's open book. Here we go. Are you ready? I just told you the one guy's name in Hebrew was Poloni Almoni. And I told you the other guy's name in English is Boaz. All right. Poloni Almoni, that's Hebrew. What is his name in English? Go. Find his name. Who can tell me this guy's name? Look in your Bible, see if you can see. What's his name? Got it? Anybody raise your hand? Who has his name? What does your Bible say? Give me a translation. What does somebody's Bible say? What? Mr. So-and-so? Good. There's another Bible that says such a one. There's another Bible that says my friend. You see, the Bible on purpose forgets his name. Because this person who is so interested in preserving their name for their own sake is now forgotten. And the one who wasn't worried about preserving their name, their name lives on in immortality. You see, what happens is this. I think there's somebody who explained this at one point. Matthew 16, 25. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will find it. See what Mr. Boaz un, uh, understands that the other redeemer does not is that self-preservation leads to extinction. Self-preservation leads to extinction. Anytime your whole motive is to preserve yourself, you end up doing the exact opposite of what you're after. How many decisions do we make in our daily lives that are for that sole purpose and motivation? The reason we're doing this is for our own self, our own well-being. You see, redemption requires sacrifice. And Boaz gets this. This is what it looks like, men, to be a real man. You want to know what a real man looks like? It's someone who has courage and is willing to risk his life and risk his estate on behalf of someone else. That's him right here. Here's a man, young ladies, if you're looking for someone to take care of you for the rest of your life, this is what you're looking for. Someone who's willing to sacrifice himself on your behalf. For whoever would lose his life will gain it, but whoever seeks to save it will lose it. 
Here in a little bit afterwards, Tom Steele is going to come up and give you a few opportunities or ways in which you can intentionally give to someone else, whether it's shoe boxes or helping hands or whatever else. Those are small things. But the big thing is this, is that Jesus says, when you sacrifice yourself for him, you get back way more than you ever gave. So number one, the city gates. They're the main, the main place, the hub, the spot to be. Number two, the other kinsman, he is what not to be. He's like Orpah. He is the foil. He is the contrast. Orpah, you don't want to be. Ruth, you do want to be. The other kinsman, you don't want to be. Boaz, you do want to be. Number one, the gate. Number two, the other kinsman. And number three, the third set of gates. Let me remind you real quick, in case you've forgotten in the last 10 minutes, what happened at the gates. Here's a slide of the city gates. At the city gates, kings sat, conspirators conspired, and war plans were made. Now, why is that important? Well, because in the New Testament, what happens is this. Jesus tells us that we're engaged in spiritual warfare, that we're in a fight. There's things going on that we can't see. And yet he assures us in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, that God's work will go forth no matter what. Now, what does he mean by the gates of hell? Does he mean that someone's actually going to pick up a gate and come try and chase you down and beat you with it? No, of course not. What in fact he's referring to is this, just like the city gates, the gate of hell, metaphorically speaking, is where the king of darkness sits. It is where he conspires against the true king and he makes his plans for war. Just like the city gates, the king of darkness sits, he conspires against and he makes his plans for war. So that in your daily life, I I know we don't want to see like a demon behind every bad day. But the reality is this. If you are following Jesus, if you are on the path that he's leading you on, that path is going to look at times quite a bit like those firemen. It's going to be windy. It's going to be through the mountain. It's going to be dark. That's why David says through the valley of the shadow of death, you will fear no evil. Not because every day is a mountaintop high Next to the lake, it's different than that. There's stuff hitting the windshield, and you can feel the heat and the flames coming up closer. That's when you know you're on the right path and you're doing your job because there's something opposing you. This is what we call the gates of hell. And Jesus has assured us that the gates of hell will not prevail against us. Now look, as you get close to hell, it's just like your fireplace. You can feel the heat. You know it's there. And you might start to wonder, wow, I'm getting pretty close. Am I about to get burned? What if the wind changes and all of a sudden I'm cut off? Who's going to rescue me? There's another image I want to give you that I saw this week. And it was this. Also from the California fires. After that scene was another video and I clicked on it and I'm watching this video. What I saw were these big, beautiful stallions, these gorgeous horses. They're 
backs and their hindquarters were all red and gnarly. And I was like, oh, I just watched some firemen hosing them down. Oh, man, these poor things, they got trapped, got burned. Now they're just, ee. And then a little shorter in the video, or a little further on, I saw a different picture. What I actually saw was this airplane flying over that area. And from the back of the airplane, it was dropping red flame retardant. And I looked a little closer at those horses, and in fact, they weren't hurt, but they were covered with flame retardant. And I said to myself, aha, the very thing I thought was their destruction was actually their preservation. I began to think about Naomi and her spot and how she watched the famine move her from one land to another. And I began to think about Naomi and her spot as she watched her husband die. And I began to think about Naomi and her spot as she watched her children die. And she thought she was at the very end of her rope about to get cut off. And this was all meant for her destruction. And as it turns out, the very thing meant for her destruction was a thing leading to her salvation. Then I began to think about myself. Christ on the cross. And that red stuff that's covering me. I thought it was for my judgment. My condemnation. My guilt. It was actually for my salvation. Church, what we need to realize. Is that despite the appearances. What the devil meant for evil. God uses for good. And that's the thing, you know, the devil is so desperate to trick you. He really wants to win, even though he knows he won't. And so he creates all these scary things like at Halloween and people put junk in their trees and they spend money on silly blow up stuff in their yards and they go to movies about guys with masks living in sewers. And we're all supposed to be like, oh no, that's terrible. Why? Because he wants to make you afraid. Because what did Jesus say? Don't. Don't fear the one who can kill the body, but fear the one who can destroy the soul. Satan has no control over your soul. He cannot destroy your soul. It is impossible for him to do that. He doesn't have that right. He doesn't have that power. So all day long, he's going to put on a mask and put up a charade and put on a show and try to scare you as bad as he can. But you know, if there's fear coming into your life, it's only from one place, and it is not from the king. That is from the conspirator at the other gate. And he uses fear, and he uses shame, and he uses guilt, and all of those things are lies. When you hear that, you need to call it what it is. You say liar. There's a place reserved for you. But for me, in my house, and this church, this is as close to hell as we will ever get. This life is as close to hell as you will ever get. It's true that you, like Naomi, can't experience things that make you think, I'm going through hell. You will see those flames leaping up, and the fire will be hot, and in fact, the skin may begin to burn, and your hair will be singed. You will be hurt. 
but you will not be destroyed. Because while he can take your life, he cannot take your soul. And what he means for evil, God will use for good. Even if he takes your life. Look at Christ. He took everything, but he didn't win. What we thought was meant for our destruction was actually our salvation. Ruth runs to Boaz, lays down at his feet, says, spread the wing of your garment over me. And we too need to run to Jesus and say, spread the banner of your love over us. Take shelter underneath his wings and the flames will pass you by. His blood is sufficient, his sacrifice more effective, and his resurrection more powerful than all of our sins. It is even strong enough to quench the hottest of the fiery darts from hell itself. Who will lead us to safety? Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Sing above the battle strife by his death and endless life. Sing it softly through the gloom. Sing in triumph or the tomb. Give the winds a mighty voice. Let the nations now rejoice. Shout salvation full and free. This our song of victory. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Although the flames may be hot, for us as believers, this is as close to hell as you ever get. Despite appearances, despite claims to the contrary, we will not be destroyed. He has spread the corner of his blanket over us. We have taken refuge under his wings and are being led to safety. Jesus saves. Jesus say. I was thinking about the sermon this week and it's kind of funny. Uh, what are you going to preach, Pastor Jeremy? Jesus saves. What are you going to preach next week, Pastor Jeremy? Jesus saves. We're going to preach after that. Jesus saves. What are you going to say after that? Jesus saves. What do you say on your dying day? Jesus saves. Father, we thank you. Jesus saves. Flames are hot sometimes. You're good. And we know that you win, and we praise you for it. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.